Hi, everybody. Teddy here with another edition of the Teddy Talk podcast. Today's guest is Adam Goldenberg. Adam is a young man in his late 30s. He's also a serial entrepreneur. Currently, along with Don Ressler, he is the co-founder and co-CEO of the Textile Fashion Group. And you'll hear more about the company in the podcast. What's of equal interest is this is Adam's fifth company. He's been starting and building companies since he was 15 years old. And this is his largest endeavor to date. So I met Adam a little over five years ago. And this is uh, one of the podcasts with a current client relationship. What really attracted me to want to work with Adam, well, Anyone who knows him will tell you he's wicked smart. Beyond that, though, he's keen on creating a corporate culture, not as a nice-to, but as a need-to, for ongoing and continued success. So I'm always in on that. If you're interested in an entrepreneur's perspective of building a brand or a few brands, I think you'll enjoy his observations of this uh, pilgrim's path, as well as his progress to date. So here we go. everybody. Teddy Tannenbaum here with another edition of the Teddy Tannenbaum Teddy Talk podcast. And today my guest is Adam Goldenberg, the co-founder and co-CEO of the Textile Fashion Group in El Segundo, California. They're an e-commerce, online apparel and footwear business. And I've had the pleasure of working with Adam and his team for the last four or five years and finally managed to get him to sit down and uh, have a little chat with me about leadership. So, Adam, welcome. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah, great, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is this is. I've been looking forward to this. Uh, so, I thought since folks you know are listening don't really know necessarily a lot about you, why don't you give us a little background, kind of your uh, your own story? Um, sure. Yeah. So I've been uh, you know building companies and in particular internet companies since pretty much the the birth of the internet. So um, back in '96 uh, in St. Louis. Uh, while I was in high school, started a company called Gamers Alliance. Um, we were a network of video game websites. Um, was fortunate to sell that my senior year in high school to Intermix Media. Um, you know, I did that in particular to go to college because uh, I was fed up with with you know going to school and then working till four in the morning. Um, instead, that actually led me to moving to Connecticut and uh, working for for Intermix for a number of years um, at Intermix Media. Um, you ended up relocating the company to Los Angeles. So that's how I ended up here in LA. Um, served a lot of different roles um, at Intermix, learned a lot there. Yeah. Um, it's where I met my longtime business partner, Don Ressler. Um, we both had companies that were acquired. Uh -huh. um, and I was at Intermix Media from 1999 all the way up till it being acquired by News Corp in 2005. So that's a good six years there. What uh, what tell us about Intermix? What did they do? Yeah, so Intermix almost did did everything. Um, yeah, because it was an interesting time, right? Because ninety nine was like the middle of the dot com boom. Yeah. Um, so I was definitely sure that you know selling my company for stock was a brilliant move, and then you know, the whole dot com bust happened, where there was you know no financing, and almost every internet company went out of business. Um, we, we survived by being incredibly scrappy. So. We really had um, three businesses. One was our content business, which was like online greeting cards and entertainment content. Uh, the second was the e-commerce business, which Don and I got involved with and directly ran. 
um, where we had many different e-commerce businesses from dating sites, which is where I met my wife, to uh, you know our own e-commerce businesses selling skincare, to printer inks, <laughs> wow. to, uh, to um, other health and wellness products. And then we also had a third division, which started many years later towards the end of Intermix, which was MySpace on, on the social networking side. Um, so it was a business that had many different operating business units. Um, over the course of the history of Intermix Media, I think we did over 10 acquisitions. Um, but you know, we're, we're very, very scrappy because we were always undercapitalized. We had to actually make money, which was, was a new concept there. That's a new concept in the, uh, in the dot, uh, dot com yep. period. So at Intermix, uh, from when I, when I remember when we met, you were telling me that at one point you were the chief operating officer, COO there, and you were pretty young at the time. Yeah, so I was, I was 20 um, when I was uh, made the chief operating officer. And that was a public company. That was a publicly traded company on the NASDAQ, yeah. Wow. Uh, probably the youngest uh, CEO of a public company at that time in the States. Yeah, and there's probably a reason for that. I don't know if I was uh, qualified uh, at the time to do it, but um, you know, I was definitely the most qualified at Intermix, so I got the job. <laughs> <laughs> in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. Yeah, yeah. yeah so. and, this is, and this is where um, Brett, Brett Brewer was there at the time, yep, right? yep. And, and Brett was running the company in Connecticut that you, uh, yeah, so you what, sold to? Yeah, so what happened is, is I sold my company, uh, and the main headquarters was in Wallingford, Connecticut. Right. Industrial town, uh, not the place to be finding the best talent. And we had an e-commerce business that was selling CDs online, um, which was just a bad business, right? <laughs> um, and so when I moved out to Connecticut, like I was you know, only 18 at the time, um, and you know, I looked like I was 12, but like pretty quickly realized like, okay, I, this business model doesn't make any sense. Every CD we sell, we lose more money. <laughs> like we only got 10 more months of cash. Like if we keep doing what we're doing, right. this is going to have a bad ending. So, um, what we decided to do was to relocate the company to LA and focus on the content part of our business. Cool. Um, so I did that and then Brett, um, stayed behind to sort of wind down and sell that business back to the to gotcha. the founder. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Yep. So with Intermix here in LA, uh, being a COO, obviously a, a big job, uh, 10 acquisitions, a lot of, lot of staff, a lot of teams, a lot of different businesses. Curious about your kind of exposure being a, you know, being a, a, an innovator early on in, in gaming and now running a company, running the operation of a company. Tell us a little about what that was like from the leadership perspective. Yeah, you know, um, well, I don't think I was very good at the leadership part of it because I don't know if I really ever considered at that point when I was 20, that part of my job, right? right. I think I, I viewed my job was to make sure we got shit done and that the company survived right. and, you know, and, and lived to fight another day. Not a theoretical exercise. Yeah. So, um, you know, I was, I was pretty hands-on. So I, you know, I would definitely be digging in and in the trenches, um, you know, hindsight being 2020, I think the parts that I did well is like, I'd be in the trenches, like first person in and last person to leave. And, you know, um, the teams rallied behind and worked really hard because, you know, their leader was working hard. Yeah. Um, but it was definitely not, you know, focusing on hiring talent, you know, empowering talent, developing, talent. Uh, developing talent, like right. those, um, you know, those things were not like what my main focus was. Wasn't on the radar at the yeah. time. Um, by chance, I think we did a decent job of actually like getting alignment. So like now today, like we think much more systematically about, you know, town hall communications and how staff meetings should run. And, and a lot of the stuff we did sort of organically right. fairly well, but it was, it was, um, um, yeah, I didn't really have a whole lot of a 
a lot of experience. Right. So it sounds also not a lot of structure. It was more entrepreneurial. We are just you're bootstrapping every day. Oh yeah, there was almost no, no structure. structure. Yeah. I mean, I think even to the point that we had like 400 employees, we only had a single person in HR. <laughs> so like <laughs> sends a message right there. Yeah. So uh, um, and nobody, no executive at Intermix thought that was weird. Right. <laughs> so uh, yeah, <laughs> and uh, and and it was successful, and you had a successful exit. Yeah. With especially yeah. with MySpace, I'm sure. And then. Uh, you and Don, who you met, you met there. You and Don went off and, and formed some other companies. Tell us about that period. Yeah, so so Don and I, you know, you know, we've been best friends now for almost twenty years. So we both had companies acquired. Um, we worked very closely together at the most profitable and most successful part of Intermix. So News Corp was acquired. Um, we definitely wanted to make it work. I think we lasted about two weeks. <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> got to get out of here. It didn't really match our DNA of like wanting to be entrepreneurial um, and, and getting you know, getting stuff done. Right. So, um, you know, we left News Corp and we started, uh, at that point, Intelligent Beauty. So, um, and that was started, you know, out of my house. Don and I, we sat across a desk from each other. We we bootstrapped and funded it ourselves. And, um, you know, Intelligent Beauty was an, you know, you know, e-commerce brand incubator starting first in the beauty space. We moved into health and wellness and then ultimately we moved into, into fashion. And, um, you know, you know, again, pretty, pretty scrappy, but we built, you know, three pretty great companies. Yeah. Um, you know, one that had a great exit to uh, Target we sold, uh, which was Derm Store. Right. And then the other one being, you know, Textile Fashion Group, which we spun out of Intelligent Beauty. Um, yeah, so it was, it was, you know, it was fun going from sort of an idea and, you know, six people working out of a house to a, a bigger business. What you have today. So with Textile, it started out as just fab. And then now it's, that's one of the brands in the company, in the, in the whole group. So with Textile, uh, Tell us a little about how how that evolved from because you guys were you fashionistas were you were you apparel people did you have that or was it all about e commerce and online so I would say that we had a unique skill set for three things this is sort of Don and I together right. one is we really understood e commerce and how to utilize e commerce and technology the second is um, being good brand builders. So, you know, Don, my co-CEO is really our brand guru and, and brand architect, but um, we had built a lot of successful brands in the beauty space. Um, you know, Don has a deep fascination, deep um, love for and experience in fashion. Okay. Um, so there's a lot of parallels between building beauty brands and building fashion brands. We felt confident there. And then I think we're really, we understand how to build marketing campaigns and utilize marketing channels to acquire customers. And if you think about, what makes e-commerce work? It's you got to have great brands. Yes. You got to be great at acquiring and retaining those customers, and you have to have the technology to make it all make it all work. So we have done that repeatedly throughout our career. Um, we're excited to take that to the fashion category. Yeah, fashion is uh, fashion and beauty are neck and neck in in uh, you know huge huge industries around the world, billions and billions of dollars, right? And we also sold a beauty company, so we had a non-compete in beauty. So we weren't going to build any more beauty brands That's for a right. while. So fashion so felt fashion, like a great place to go. Right. Yeah. So tell us about the company today. What's uh, give us a sense of what's the status of the company today? Yeah, I think you know one. Is, I think Donna, we're both really proud of this company and, and the brands and the teams that have built those brands. So textile today, um, we're right around a billion dollars in sales. We have a portfolio of five fashion brands. 
um, just fab and shoe dazzle in the women's footwear space, fab kids for focusing on, on children, uh, fabletics in the active wear space, you know, really a direct competitor to, um, Lululemon, Nike and Under Armour. And then most recently we launched a joint venture with Rihanna in Savage X Fenty. So across those brands, um, we have over 5 million active members of our membership program and the company is completely vertically integrated. Um, so, uh, that goes for the merchandise itself where we're, you know, designing the product development, developing the tech packs, placing it into the factories, controlling the supply chain all the way down to doing the end fulfillment to the customer. Um, the technology is our own technology stack. So, um, we spent the last 10 years and $150 million building out what we call fashion OS, which powers all of our business. Um, you know, down to the global, what we call, you know, our customer service is called global member service, you know, where we have over a thousand agents that are servicing our customers. Um, we buy our own advertising, we shoot our own TV commercials. So it's really a completely- Completely integrated. Integrated. And what right. that's allowed us to do is to be very nimble, to use data and have real experts in all these areas. That's become a real, real advantage for, for, for textile. Yeah, that's, that's the competitive advantage right there, building your own tech packs from the inside out. So- Let's let's shift a little bit and talk about the the arc of your leadership, right? Because now you're CEO of this company that you built from across the table with Don, and uh, you know at your house into this you know billion dollar brand which has uh, you know high name recognition and celebrities with Kate Hudson with Rihanna. So tell me about some of the when you reflect on the leadership lessons you've learned, right? What are some of those? Yeah, so all the other companies Don and I we built together. Yeah, I think we had incredible culture organically without thinking about it when we were a small company. And then at some point, the companies got bigger. You know, usually when we crossed about 100 or 150 people, we're like inside your own company, it felt like, wow, this is different and not in a good way, right? Things have changed. So when we started Textile, you know, we decided on day one that we were going to really, one, we decided we were going to build a billion dollar company back when there was six of us in an idea. And two, we said, hey, look, we're going to develop our culture and make that a priority from day one. So when this company is bigger, it feels just as great as it does today or maybe even better. So I think this is the first time of all the companies we built that we really built it from a culture first mentality yeah. where we said, hey, the, the culture of the company is equally important to the financial success as well as the brands that we are building. Yeah. So that was fundamentally different. Yeah. I remember... We met, you and I met uh, in the summer of 2014, and we spent some time together getting to know each other. And I remember at the end of the conversation, I said, so how can I help? And what you said to me at the time was, you know, Don and I have been successful in all these companies we've started, but I don't think we've ever gotten the culture right. Really want to get the culture right. At that point, I just, just you know, I'm in. That's, to me, that's, as uh, I think it was Peter Drucker who was <clears throat> said to have said, whether he said it or not, I don't know, that culture eats strategy for breakfast, right? And that that uh, if you're going to have, you know, Norman Schwarzkopf, the general Schwarzkopf once said that if you have a choice between culture and strategy, right, you can only have one, go with culture. So I, I that resonated for me. And the idea of saying, okay, we that same feeling we have when there's six of us, how do we have that when we cross that 150-person team member uh, threshold? So tell us about, you know, how would you describe the culture today? Yeah, I think, you know, part of our cornerstones is we want passionate employees. So if you look at our workforce and our teams, they're highly passionate. 
they deeply care about, you know, the work that they're doing, which is, which is critical. Um, it's a group that has fun. You know, like we, we try not to take ourselves too seriously. You spend more time at the office than anywhere else. So you better have fun and enjoy what you do. And we're fortunate here in fashion. Like we're not trying to cure cancer, right? We're selling fashion, so it should be fun. So you, you have this, you know, passionate teams, highly smart, um, very driven, but they're having fun along the way. And then we like to laugh at our failures and encourage people to take chances, which ultimately drives, you know, innovation and, and big wins. Right. Um, so that that's what we're trying to build. So as the saying goes, let's fail better next time. Yeah, look, our, our three things are like, we want drive, we want people to work as one team, and we want to have innovation. Right. And innovation can be like huge, big ideas, or it could just be like, hey, how do we take this process that's painful and, and make it better, right? And if that happens at all levels of the company, we, we feel pretty good about things working. Yeah. The curious about some of those those pain points. Don't want to bring up some bad memories, but I'm curious because my experience is working with so many leaders is that a lot of the the leadership arc of a, of a person, the key plot points are when they face a significant challenge and it had them rethink how they were showing up as a leader. So I'm curious if you can reflect back on any significant challenges you may have faced and what you did as a leader to transcend that. Um, that's a great question. It gives yeah. you, it gives you a little pause, which is cool. Yeah. I think there's, um, you know, I think, you know, I don't know if there's this one moment in time, but effectively as the company grew, you know, like Don and I had to transition from being the individuals that are managing, you know, individual projects, right. Right. In individual brands to how do we actually shift to building out teams and really empowering those teams and making sure that we're, it's like, when does your job change from doing to instead like, Hey, most of my job is to hire the best people, you know, help get those teams to develop the strategies together and then make sure everybody's rowing in the same direction. So um, I think textile will be farther along today and we're, we're doing great. Don't get me wrong. Uh -huh. But I think if, if I had realized that earlier on and probably got out of some day-to-day -day projects and work sooner, um, and said, okay, let's, let's hand over the reins. Right. Um, so it's, it's learning how to get results with and through other people, right? Cause you could bootstrap something all day long, but you're one person can't do it all yourself. So then that's, that's the hiring is critical at that point, right? Yep. As good to great talks about get the right people on the bus. Yep. And that's not always that easy. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> We all know that. So uh, tell us about the future. What's, uh, what, is, what does textile look like going forward? You're at a billion dollars now. What's the plan? Yeah, I think we're, I mean, there's lots of stuff we're excited about. So um, it's a little bit by each brand, each segment. But if you look at Fabletics, what we're, what we're really doing now is we're very excited about moving into men's. So we just launched our, we're just in the process of launching our men's line. Right. We're... Um, dramatically scaling our retail stores. So I think we've really cracked how do you bring membership and, you know, this omni-channel experience into retail. So, um, you know, we're at 39 stores today. We're opening now over 24 stores um, per year. So this is really interesting because the trend is the other way. The malls are, are collapsing. Everyone's folding retail. And you're taking an online commerce business and now saying we're going to expand into retail. Yeah, we're doing it very differently than everybody else out there. So, um 
most companies or e-commerce companies that are opening up retail stores, they're doing it to try to acquire new customers. And what we believe is like, you can always acquire customers more cost effectively online. We're opening up our stores where we already have tens of thousands of members and creating another place that they can interact with the brand. So we're able to get very data-driven about where we open our locations to know that we have a certain number of customers within a 30-minute drive. And what we've seen is when we open up a Fabletic store near them, 50% of them become an omni-channel shopper where they spend two and a half times more per year, have a higher brand satisfaction and relationship and, and a longer retention. So for us, it's, it's a little bit of a flywheel where like the more customers we have, the better the retail locations do and the more retail stores it can support. Um, you know, our belief is that like retail isn't going away, but it's going to go from being 65% of sales down to 35% of sales. And what will happen is B and C malls probably won't be here. Because right. I would call a B mall your convenience mall, which is that's the mall that's down the street. I need to pick up, you know, a pair of shoes or I need to pick up a gift or a card. I'm going to run to that mall. That type of thing you do online now. The A malls are the experiential malls. And maybe you drive 20 minutes, but they have the best shopping, best restaurants. It's what you're going to do for entertainment. So what's happening actually is that the A malls are doing fine. The B and C malls are the ones that are declining. So we're getting the benefit of picking and growing up to where we think the world's going to be versus a big retailer who might have a thousand stores saying, hey, I got to figure out how to get from a thousand down to 200. So um, we're really excited about it. And we're seeing same store comps of over 30% oh my. Uh, growth. So that, that's been, been awesome. Um, and I just spent, you know, we have the best leader there in Ron Harry's. I think you've met Ron. Yes. Um, like where we're winning in our retail stores is the culture of the teams. Like these store managers and uh, store employees are, they're awesome. Like they love the company, they love the brand and that shows that shows through. Yeah, and when the and the customers that come in there, so many of those customers are because they're omni-channel shoppers. They're already familiar with the brand. Now they're going in and touching and feeling the fabrics. That's right. So we got yeah, we got about sixty percent of the sales happening in the store. People familiar with the brand, but the other forty percent are new customers, right? So we are getting new customers as well. Um, so it, it it works for both both ways. But what's been really great is, you know, often you think about like you know the employee working or opening up a retail store, um, like. We have a, most of our store managers come from another store where they're saying, I want to relocate to a new city so I can grow and be a store manager, right? So that's a, that just shows like the level of passion and dedication that our, our store associates have. Sure. That's a great incentive for them. Yep. Love that. So that's the Fabletics. Yep. What about Savage X and the uh, fashion, other fashion brands? You know, so Savage has been amazing. So I think we're, we're, we're truly changing the landscape for like what a brand should be. So we just did a great fashion show. Rihanna put on an amazing show with Amazon. If you haven't seen it, you should stream it on yeah, Amazon Prime. It. But what Rihanna's done with this brand in terms of creating uh, diversity and inclusion and empowerment is is great. It's really a powerful, and it's showing up in in everything. I mean, the customers emphatically love this brand. Yeah. So for Savage, this next couple of years are all just about growth. You know, it's still a very young brand, so it's. It's continuing to scale our customer base, yeah. continuing to refine our product. Um, but there's just a lot of growth ahead for, for Savage. Yeah, the press was fantastic around that. And uh, just around the diversity and inclusion in particular, it's really elevated the lingerie you know, space. Yeah, I think there's a lot of brands that talk about those things, but they don't authentically live it. Yeah. This brand lives it. Yeah. Uh, and, that, and that shines and comes, comes through. That's pretty cool.
And then the uh, Fab Kids, Just Fab and Shoe Dazzle. Yeah. So, I mean, look, those are every, you know, every, every brand's one of our babies. So, um, you know, it's been a little harder in the women's shoe business the last couple of years. Because if you look at what's going on, there's a general movement to, towards more casual. Yeah. So, um, you know, women's footwear, like the high heel footwear is actually declining in the industry, six to 7%. Fortunately, we're not doing that. But there is some headwinds there. So, um, and there's been a lot of competition of, you know, um, pricing discounting as guys like Payless and Charlotte Ruse went out of business, you know, Forever 21 filing bankruptcy. Right. Um, so these guys are doing a lot of discounting. So we're really focusing on, you know, being best in the world at our footwear. So for a little bit there, we are also working on apparel and we're going to continue to have apparel, but where we can win and be best in the world is having the best selection, the best fashion and the best value for price. Um, so the team's been working hard on that and we're, we're having a great Q4 as a result. Yeah. And uh, also heavy uh, reliance on influencers. Tell us about that a little bit. Yeah, you know, um, you know, the world's changed, right? When Don and I were building brands, you know, even as recently as seven, eight years ago, a lot of it was about like supplementing your digital advertising with television, right? Television advertising, when done right, could be an effective customer acquisition channel, but it was also a brand builder and a brand authenticity uh, yes. channel. Um, nobody's watching TV today. Now, they're watching Hulu, they're watching Netflix, and we advertise there. But really, the, that's where influencers and ambassadors come in. So, um, you know, all of our brands have, you know, thousands and thousands of, you know, between micro-influencers all the way up to larger celebrity collaborations um, that, that help, um, you know, bring the brands to life to a larger customer base, right? So um, for all of our brands, they're, they're all different. But they all are are heavily utilizing, uh, you know, influencer marketing. So, it's a great uh, overview of of the brands and and uh, where they're at and where you're going with them. I want to go back to culture a little bit. I know that from your, you know, because I've heard you speak at various town halls, and you talk a lot about culture and the and textile being a great place to work. It's like somehow this is elevated to top of mind for you. I'm curious about a little bit more about that. You know, your journey of saying that this is a, a, a this is a significant strategic imperative for us that we believe that culture is that important and we want to we want to make this place a great place to work. How do you do that? Well, if if, you, if there's a cliff note version, I, I'm 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 buying it. <laughs> so, um, look, I think you know, Don, I've talked. I mean, what we really believe is like. If we can get the culture right, this is going to work, right? We feel 100% confidence on our, confidence in our brand. We feel confident in our strategy. It's really about can we execute. Right. And executing is all about hiring the right people, having them work together well, and creating this, this great environment. So um, what I like about Great Place to Work is um, it's actually a scorecard because I think when it comes to like organizational health, you can drink your own Kool-Aid. And when you have some like great, great place to work where it's a, a scoring system to compare yourself to all the other companies in the U.S. that participate and you sort of know this is the threshold to be a top 100 great place to work, it becomes a real scorecard. So we set the goal um, within three years, and this is about nine months ago, to be a top 100 great place to work. Uh, we've been certified four, year in the row, four years in a row, but you know, we got to probably improve our score seven, eight points to... To, to, to hit that goal. Um, and it's not about 
being able to put into a press release, we're a top 100 great place to work. It's our belief that if we are, the degree of innovation and productivity and just overall financial success that will come from it will be awesome. And we'll have a lot more fun in the process. So I wish there was an easy answer to it, but really what you do is you, you like you, you get the data and then it points out like, where are you struggling? And you can't fix everything at once. So you pick two or three things each quarter and you, you decide you're going to try to get better at them. And to do that, it's often asking the team to say, look, you guys have said that, you know, this area, we're not doing great. Like, what do you think we should be doing better? So it's a, um, I love Don saying, um, you know, there's a reason you have two ears and one mouth, right? <laughs> you should be listening twice as much as you're talking. So it's a lot of just asking the team, yeah. you know, what, what, what could we be doing better? And then when you hear a good idea, like go implement it. Yeah. So it speaks to the wisdom of teams, right? Which is a prevailing thought in leadership these days is that you want to drive the decision-making as deep down to an organization as possible. Because those are people the closest to the customer and closest to the day-to-day experience of what it's like to be in the trenches, right? As the co-CEO, you and Don both, uh, you've got to be about strategy and people, right? And you've got to make sure as you talk about, I got to get the right people on the bus and then make sure they understand what success looks like and then provide the resources for them to meet the expectations we all set together to achieve that success, right? Yep. I like this idea, this comment about, you know, you pick two or three things according, so we're going to focus on those things. And listening to to the team members, listening to the employees, giving them a voice will provide that empowerment, that ownership for them. So that's what I see. I, you know, I'm, I'm here a fair amount these days. So, you know, <laughs> you see me around and I have a chance to work with a lot of the senior leaders. And that's what I see uh, going on is people really trying to listen carefully. Yeah, what I like about it too is... Um I think that's what's been a big change for textiles we, as we grew. In the past, there really was like one organizational health, right? When we we're a 100-person company, you could sort of say like the overall company health is great or we were having this challenge. But now that there's offices in different locations, right. there's different brands, there's different teams, what really comes clear is that there's certain things that across textile we're doing well. Um, but then there's individual things that certain teams are doing well or not. And... Um, look, our, our executives are, you know, they're highly driven. Nobody wants to be the lowest. Right. <laughs> so, um, you know, as soon as you actually have a scorecard of like, hey, look, this, you know, the numbers don't lie. Here's the org health of, you know, this area versus that one. It, it really does drive people to be like, hey, we got to really focus on it. Yeah. You know, in having worked with the senior team uh, for some time, one of my takeaways was that this was a group that uh, all have a high desire to be in a leadership position, super competitive. So, and of course, it's a data-driven company, right? It's all, mm-hmm. it's all about the data. And every meeting I, I, I sit on, everyone's talking about data. So now you get data on a great place to work. People look at it and they go, all right, what's your, what are your numbers? What are your numbers, right? And it's like, I don't, <laughs> I don't want to be last. That's a great motivator, right? Yep. You, uh, you hire competitive people. One of my clients years ago said, I, I, I like to hire competitive people. I want them to compete in the various industries where we play. I don't want them necessarily to compete with each other at the expense of the overall success, yep. right? So you got to be, you got to have a guardrail around that. But when you see that, when you look at the numbers and the data, and you go, "Yeah, I'm, not, I'm in the middle of the pack. I want to be leading the pack." That's right. That's what you want, and you incentivize them to do that. Yeah, and I think it also, um, you know, it's not just about the scores from Great Place to Work, but it, they do line up, right? Like when I look at the areas that are scoring the highest, they're also the most productive 
most healthy, hitting right. all their financial right. goals and targets. Um, but one thing that's for sure, like those leaders are spending much more of their time focusing on like communicating the vision, right. um, the career growth for their teams, and you know, you know, really um, empowering and clearing the way, yeah. as opposed to being too far in the trenches, yeah. right? No, I, I I get that. That there's a that causation correlation connection. You when you think about a great place to work, uh, those things I said they they do line up. When people when when leaders understand what motivates their team members and makes them feel valued and can address those things, it almost feels like it it's it's a self starter. It just it kicks in and people go, yeah, I I want to be here. I add value. I'm rewarded. I'm recognized. I can get development. And there's a whole panoply that opens up when that happens. And then, you know, you go, whoa, sometimes, you know, you think you're riding the horse and you're controlling it. And then you realize, oh my, the horse is just moving pretty quick and I'm just hanging on. So there's that, you know, there was always these inf inflection points because a billion dollar company, a lot different than 500 million, a lot different than a billion and a half, right? It's a, it's a different iteration. So it'll be curious to see how the thing, how the whole thing unfolds. Yep, yep. <laughs> so you're operating in Europe, right? You have offices in Europe. Yeah, we have offices. We've got about 125 people in Europe, spread across uh, London, Berlin, and Barcelona. Barcelona. Yep, all nice towns, great towns, yep. right? And how many, how many total employees? So over 2,500, um, and, and growing quickly. Yeah, fantastic. So. Uh, what about you? How long are you going to do this? You know, as long as my wife will let me. <laughs> no. So the, the funny thing was uh, when we started Textile, you know, I more or less promised that there would be no businesses after Textile. But, you know, she, Patricia didn't really say that you couldn't start new brands <laughs> inside of Textile. So five brands later, you know, here we are. Um, but, you know, the truth of the matter is, like, I, I love this job. Like, this right. is um, um, like the other jobs that I've done, like, I liked winning, right? And I liked the teams that I work with, but I wasn't passionate necessarily about the the businesses and the brands themselves. Like I love every one of our brands. Um, this job is challenging every single day. So um, I got a lot left in the- In the tank there. In the tank, yeah. yeah. What do you do? You know, I'm assuming that you do have some time when you're not working? Not not really. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I already knew that, but I was trying to see if there's a possibility that maybe you do something when you're not working. Well, you know, because I, I, I actually, you know, I think the other thing I learned along the way is, um, you know, like 20-year-old me would never have asked for uh, executive coaching. That would have been like, you know, like that, that's supposed to be my job. I shouldn't be getting coached on it. Um, you know, today it's like, well, look, even even Tiger Woods has a hitting coach. Like, right. you know, executives should get coaching. But I, I remember that when we first talked, you know, one of the things that showed up in my uh, Harrison assessment is, you know, desire for work-life balance and then... You know, I think it's awful. And uh, I think you said, like, well, who, who do you think is going to fix that for you? Are you expecting a board member to call you up and say, hey, Adam, how's your work-life balance? Are you getting home once a week to have dinner with the family and right. making time to do those things? So it was, you know, really a wake-up call to, uh, yeah. you know, take a little more ownership there. Um, I'm still lousy at it. Um, but at least I don't blame anybody but myself now. There you go. I, I've shifted. Um, I, I, I no longer use the term work-life balance. I've shifted into uh, work-life integration. Because I'm not sure balance is even possible, but integration gives me a sense that okay, this is possible, and 
you know, I, when I talk to, I always talk to so many team members and so many companies, and we talk about that idea of work-life integration. And people talk about, well, some people have this false notion that it's the company's responsibility. Of course, it isn't. Company can provide flexible work time, right, and various, you know, work schedules, things like that. But it's really up to the individual to understand that stress is a physiological reaction from some stressor, and that you have to understand the source of your stress in order to be able to manage it, not control, but manage it, and how you show up with other people sends a strong message to how they're going to perform. You know, there are some people who have a reputation in companies as crazy makers. They walk in a room and people go, oh my, right? There's like, oh, I'm waiting for the, the pin on the grenade to be pulled and, and, and tossed into the room. Other people are said, wow, you know what? One thing about my leader, when he or she walks in the room, things get calm. The latter is probably more preferable. Oh, for sure. For sure. <laughs> yeah. So I do remember you tell me that your kids, when they were younger, would say, when, when are you going to be home? Yeah. When are you going to be home? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And especially now them being 10 and seven, like, so outside of working, it's, it's being a dad. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the only thing I, I do make time for, for myself is snowboarding. Snowboard. I, so, yeah. you know, in uh, Japan. Yeah. You, when we did Japan last year, we we're doing France this year. Uh, not that I'm great by any means, but like, you know, I figured there's only another 30, 40 years I can probably snowboard. I got to make the most of every season. That's the way I feel about baseball. How yeah. much time do I have left? Yep. <laughs> yep. All right. What else do you want to tell us? Anything else you'd like to, uh, that's top of mind for you about your experience here that you want to share with the audience? Gosh, that's a great question. Um, yeah, look, I, I think there's a lot of things that, that, um, you know, I know I've taken for granted, right? Where, you know, for myself, I feel like I've been managing people for most of my life, right? I started that at 15. So, you know, but I, I do forget that, like, you know, you have first-time managers. Um, and one of the big mistakes that we've made here at Textile that we're now correcting, which is, you know, we haven't had any formal manager training, right? Even at now as a two, you know, 2,000 or 2,500-person company, there's no formal management training. So um, we have a lot of first-time managers. And, you know, employees don't leave companies. They leave their manager. So, you know, we haven't really thought about that. Hey, when you have a first-time manager that you're throwing into the wild, like it's not just them necessarily being inefficient. It's like, what does that create for the teams that they're managing? So we're getting, uh, we've gotten much more serious about onboarding. That's had a profound impact. Um, now we've gotten much more serious about manager and management training. Um, we're getting great responses to that. Um, but I think for sure, if I think about like the last 20 years, like Textile is the first company that I've been part of that we've created like a full, here's your one week formal onboarding. We call it fashion week. Right. And it's had a, big impact on employees coming on board and hitting the ground running, making friends right from day one and feeling, you know, comfortable. Um, their first impressions with the company, which if that's positive, like that has a halo effect for a long time to come. Indeed. So um, I think there's like little things a lot of entrepreneurial companies don't think about that are really pretty easy to implement. Yeah. Um, Love that. All right. Hey, I appreciate your time, man. Cause I know that you're busy and, uh, you got a lot to do. Yeah. Thanks. So thanks again for taking the time. Cool. Thanks, Teddy. All right. Take care.